This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Father, we do want to let your word speak to us. God, we want to come to your word with an attitude of submission, attitude of of listening, an attitude that that we want to obey what you have, uh, even before we know what it is. We want that kind of maturity to be an earmark of our discipleship with you. And so, Father, lead us now in this time that we would be able to hear boldly and clearly from your spirit. Pray that in your name. Amen. Question for you. When has been a time when you have been desperate? I mean like really desperate. I know Valentine's Day is coming up this week. I don't mean that kind of desperate. I mean really desperate, all right? Where you were in a tight spot. And maybe it was relationally or maybe it was financially. Maybe it was with your health or with your kids. But you can look back at that moment, that season, that time, and you can honestly say you were desperate. And you knew that you were desperate the exact same way that any other person in this room knows when they're desperate. One measurement. By what you are willing to do. Right? The old saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. Right? Measures. What are you willing to do is a sign of how desperate you really are. I remember uh, when my wife and I, when we were having our firstborn, Judah, and we were in the hospital for his delivery nine months after our wedding day, and uh, <laughs> catching up on that one, huh? And uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're in there, <laughs> and, uh, and, and things are getting close to, uh, to, to the time, and and uh, suddenly, you know, my wife's hooked up, of course, to all these monitors and computers and all this stuff and so forth. And suddenly, one of these alarms start going off. And we find out that it's because uh, Judah's oxygen levels are dropping. And, uh, and so, you know, the nurse comes in. She's, you know, figuring this out. She's having us do this and that and move this way and that way and so forth. Uh, but nothing's working. And uh, then there's more nurses in the room. And then uh, they're trying to get a hold of a doctor. And uh, then they're telling me about an emergency C-section. And I can tell you in that moment, I was desperate. There was absolutely nothing I could do. But if you walked up to me and you, you wanted all the money in my bank account to fix this situation, the answer was yes. There wasn't much in there, but the answer was yes, right? It's because I was desperate. Desperation in life reveals loyalties. It reveals priorities. In that moment, Judah was my loyalty. He was my priority. If you wanted whatever it would have taken to fix the situation, it was yes, because he was what I was loyal to. That desperation revealed that all kinds of things were second place from what I was willing to do. Now, things turned out okay. We don't know what happened, but his oxygen levels, you know, began to to rise and, and, at just the right time, and, and the crisis was averted. Praise God. But let me ask you, think about your life. When has been a moment, when has been a season when you have been desperate? 
You have become so distressed, disillusioned, or disenfranchised with what was happening to you or what was happening uh, maybe around you that you became desperate, that you were willing to do things that you never thought you'd do, <laughs> willing to say things you never thought you'd say because you were, you were desperate. Those moments, they are incredibly revealing about our loyalties. Where are we really loyal to? And this doesn't just show up in the crisis moments of our life. This kind of pressure, pressure has a way of revealing our priorities in big and small situations, right? You might not always be as desperate at, as other times. And I don't know about you, but when I think about those times, there's plenty of times when a certain uh, craving or a desire or a fear has shown that I have some loyalties, some priorities that I'm not too proud of. I have some commitments that maybe need to get rearranged. Maybe you can relate. I want to share with you this morning a passage of Scripture that shows two men whose desperation because of their distress or because of their disillusionment revealed their loyalties, and the story ends with two very different responses. And it offers us an insight about those desperate moments when we can't do anything, we can't fix this, those moments when maybe God is up to something in the midst of them. That maybe in those moments, God is rearranging our loyalties, adjusting our priorities. And I want to invite you to turn with me to look at it this morning in our Father's Word in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We've been in 1 Kings last week. We were looking at the prophet Elijah. This week we're seeing his, uh, his, press, uh, his, uh, his successor of Elisha. Verse 1, we have our passage. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, your copy might say Aram, same place, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he had a problem. He was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord, that's a reference to Naaman, were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, don't miss what's going on here. All right, Naaman is a very wealthy, very successful, noble general who's got a lot of favor and so forth. But he's got this, this health condition. He's, he has a glaring issue. He's a leper. Now, leprosy in those days is not necessarily always just a, a direct equivalent to Hansen's disease today. Leprosy in those days was a name for almost any kind of skin disease or skin condition um, that, that you were experiencing. But this one had to be pretty serious in light of what begins to follow here in the following verses. Because we find out that Naaman is desperate enough to listen to this little slave girl. He is so desperate, he's willing to listen to anyone. 
An odd set of circumstances has created in him a desperation. So much so that then he, based on this advice, which seems to spread like wildfire, because next thing you know, Naaman is going to the king of Syria, asking permission to go seek healing in Israel. Not their favorite country, right? He's, he's on a mission here. And, and the king, as it was in that day and time, his custom, he wrote a letter on behalf of Naaman to give to the king of Israel, explaining that he was there for healing. And so uh, with this letter, uh, Naaman then takes out a giant fortune from his uh, bank account. Uh, in that day and time, if you were to go see a healer, a doctor, whatnot, you would take a, a fee. You would take a, a monetary gift or some kind of you know, gift, and you would give them that in response for the healing. And so uh, Naaman, though, he doesn't just take out the typical doctor's fee, uh, which maybe it is this, these days, but he takes out the equivalent of winning the lottery, right? He takes out this massive chunk of change. And then he, what he does is he mounts up his horses and his chariots, and he, he marches his whole caravan off to the gates of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. And he goes there, and he speaks with the king. Verse 7, we pick up things as the king reads his letter. Verse 7 says, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Again, note what's happening here. Opposite of the little slave girl captive in a foreign country, the king, who is safe in his palace, has zero confidence in God's ability to work. In spite of vastly different circumstances, one has faith and one does not have an ounce of faith, right? But Elisha does. Elisha steps in. Uh, it lets the king uh, know that, that he can do something. The king isn't exactly a fan of Elisha at this time, but, but he gives in. What else does he have to do? He's desperate. And so Naaman then in his desperation is willing to shuffle off probably to another town to see Elisha. And so when he gets there, the general shows up. And he shows up in force. That's what this picture is of. He shows up with his horses and his chariots. All right, those are tanks of the ancient world. All right? And he shows up there, and it, it, it paints this picture of, of him standing there in front of Elisha's house. Picture George Patton, okay? Kind of, you know, one of those kinds of guys. You know, he's, he's got his whole army here. What is Elisha's response? Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. Instead, he, he sends a messenger, right? You can picture a little messenger boy trotting out to Naaman. And he says, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Well, Naaman has a response. But Naaman, verse 11, was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that surely he would come out to me and he would stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. 
That's what they maybe typically did. Verse 12, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, his hometown, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? Right? What kind of solution is this? I could have done this at home. So he turned and he went away in rage. Naaman's insulted. He's disrespected. He knows that, that that's not how you get rid of leprosy. But he's also desperate. And so his servants come to him and they make a case saying, you know, if Elisha had asked him to do something complicated, Naaman, wouldn't you have done that? Right? Instead, he's asked you just to do something simple and we came all this way. So, you know, maybe, maybe we could try. Naaman humbles himself. Verse 14. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Like the little girl that tells him about this to begin with. And he was clean. A miracle. But something much more than physical healing is going on here. Verse 15, and when he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. You can't buy healing, not even for the lottery. See, God hasn't just been healing this man's body. He has been saving his soul. The death that clung to Nathan's skin mirrors the death that clung to his soul. And Naaman is being drawn out by God into his desperate need. And he is being humbled to follow a way that is not his own. It's not according to his thinking. It's not his mindset. It's not the way he would do things. And he's washed. He's healed. His eyes are opened. To the one true God. And he believes. And that is something that cannot be bought and it cannot be earned. It's the gospel. And it's why Naaman needed to experience it this way. It's a beautiful reversal of someone in their desperate need who comes to the point of being willing to trade all their old loyalties in. And is being given a new one. But while he's going through this, while this scene is, is going on, we discover someone else has been watching. Someone else has been seeing this develop on the sidelines. Verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. What's going on here? Gehazi functioned as Elisha's right-hand man. And he had been watching this scene unfold. And two things we discover have really upset him. The first is found in the little phrase that he uses when he says, uh, this Naaman, the Syrian. This is a term that would communicate disdain. After all, what has Naaman and his fellow countrymen been up to? They have been killing, 
raiding, plundering, hauling off women and children to Syria. Some of the very, very few followers of the Lord that are left in Israel, apparently, like this little girl, are some of the ones being hauled off. Elisha just healed one. Second, we know from the surrounding chapters that Elisha and his men, they're not well off. All right, far from it. Uh, and, and yet, Elisha has just been offered the lottery, and he turned it down. Elisha doesn't even exact a, 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 even a sliver of monetary repentance from Naaman. So Gehazi, he's disillusioned. He's looking at Elisha going, you're crazy. What are you doing? Elisha isn't responding the way that Gehazi wants him to. And so Gehazi, in his disillusionment, runs after Naaman. He lies to Naaman. Naaman, uh, to be able to get uh, some of the uh, more resources, some of the, the gold and, and silver or whatnot, right? He tries to get some of this. And, uh, and in response, Naaman is humble about it. And he, in fact, he even gives Gehazi even more than what he asks for. And Gehazi thinks he gets away with it. He takes it all. He, he hides it. And then we pick up the final scene, verse 25. And he went in, and he stood before his master. Same mirroring picture of Naaman. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said to him, Your servant went nowhere. There's a dead giveaway. Whenever my three-year-old, whenever I ask him where he's been, and he says, you know, nothing, nowhere, you know, things like that. It's trouble. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. I want you to picture with me these two tales of desperation. Uh, this graphic up here on the screen kind of shows uh, each of the trajectories to the story. You have one man who, and Naaman, who thinks he has it all, but is humbled to realize he has nothing and is then given everything. You have Gehazi, who thinks he has nothing, and just at the point when he thinks he now has it all, everything is taken away from him. Everything. See, friends, our greed can't get what only the gospel can give. Our greed cannot get us what only the gospel can give us. In our desperate search for life, God has thwarted every other avenue except himself. In this text, God uses desperation in one man's life to uh, strip him of every other loyalty. He thwarts every other attempt at life in a gracious effort to bring him to his knees. And God uses desperation and then in another man's life to reveal his loyalties too. That he too is trying to control and deceive his way into getting a little bit more for himself. And he's graciously confronted and given a chance to come clean. You know, Jesus will look back at this moment a couple hundred years later in Luke chapter 4. 
and he'll point out to a group of people that in Elisha's day, there were all kinds of lepers, but only one was healed. His point was in the passage that in Elisha's day, in our day, in Jesus' day, God has graciously encountered many desperate, hard-hearted, greedy people like us who are trying to control their world, and he's provided an opportunity to be humbled and healed, to receive what only the gospel can give, and many will miss out. Many will miss out. Many will be like a Ahazai, not realizing that our greed can't get us what only the gospel can give us. The satisfaction of our heart's desire is found in only one source. Many lepers, one healed. Naaman, though, shouldn't be given the credit here. Naaman, left to his own devices, would have done the same thing that Gehazi did in looking to money or to power or some other comfort to meet that, that satisfaction that he's looking for. It's only in God's mercy and his grace that he's confronted. But we're not too far different than Gehazi or Naaman, are we? Oftentimes, we turn to different sources in, in, in greed to try to find that kind of satisfaction. We try to get all kinds of things to be satisfied. One thing that I think uh, can be somewhat confusing in all this is the way that we oftentimes use the term greed. What is greed after all? Typically, we think of greed kind of like the game show where somebody has won $100,000 and then they have a chance to risk it all for $150,000. And we're looking at the TV going, don't do it, stupid, you know. <laughs> Take the money and walk away because obviously that's what we would do in that situation. <laughs> And then they risk it, and they lose it all. And what do we say? They got greedy. They got greedy. But you know, simply wanting more money is a, actually a very poor definition of greed. Gaining wealth, by the way, is not the same as greed. No, greed is a disproportionate loyalty to having more. Greed is a disproportionate loyalty to having more. More of what? Anything. Anything. Speaking to this issue in uh, Wilkins and Sanford's book, Hidden Worldviews, they point out that while most people would not voice this conviction, the natural outgrowth of full-blown consumerism is that people are reduced to objects and can be used in ways that bring about our own gratification. A blatant example of this appeared in the last quarter of 2003 when Carl's Jr. restaurant developed a series of advertisements that featured Hugh Hefner and several beautiful women, including his wife. The basic message was just as Hugh Hefner likes variety in women, he also likes variety in his hamburgers. There it was. People ended up in the same category as burgers. Greed is a disproportionate loyalty to having more. 
more clothes, more women, more money, more books, more shows, more buildings, more people, more followers, more likes, more. Don't be deceived that greed somehow only applies to the dollar signs. And it also, by the way, is not about the amount of money. It's not about the amount. Sometimes we think because we are not after a pile of cash, that we're not greedy. Maybe that's what Gehazi was thinking. In verse 22, when Gehazi caught up with Naaman, all he asked for was one of the ten talents of silver and two of the ten changes of clothes. And he doesn't even ask for, for any of the gold. All he asked for was the tiniest sliver of the wealth. That's all he asked for. But what was it that Elisha said to him? Verse 26, but he said to him, did not my heart go? It's a picture of his heart being broken. When the man turned from his chariot to meet you, and here it is, was it a time? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? See, greed is not always seen in how much we're after, but in the disproportionate loyalty to more. It's something that can be seen in the way that it drives us. It drives us to say, I don't care if this is the right time. I want what I want now. That's greed. Greed for whatever would drive you to pursue more at the expense of those around you, yourself, and God. And it will want it now. It will not ignore, uh, it, it will ignore what's appropriate and what's right in a search to get the life that it's hoping that having more will bring. Its loyalty is discovered in desperation. And yet every time the deep satisfaction our soul was looking for is missing. Because our greed can't get what only the gospel can give. But I wonder if we are yet desperate enough to realize the empty promises of greed for more, more, and more. Or do, I think, do we think to ourselves, you know, I'm pretty sure a million dollars can't buy happiness. I wouldn't mind giving it a shot. Where are we at? So how desperate do we need to be? before we'll turn to Jesus' gospel for satisfaction. Well, as we consider the other desperate man in this section, we should realize that Naaman is also using these things. Naaman is trying to use money and power to get healed. And we should realize Naaman, desperate as he is, does not deserve healing. It doesn't matter how rich, powerful, successful, noble he is. In fact, if we could somehow do uh, some kind of moral comparison between Naaman and Gehazi, I'm pretty sure that Naaman's life of, of raiding and plundering and killing and hauling off you know, girls as slaves probably looks a little bit worse than Gehazi's life as Elisha's servant. Right? But both. We're undeserving of God's kindness. It is not based upon their goodness that either receives anything. And yet God in his grace and mercy 
heals Naaman's leprosy and changes his heart. And God, in his grace and mercy, disciplines Gehazi with leprosy to bring him to the point of repentance, which I believe happens and is why Gehazi will show up in the Lord's service three chapters later. Praise God that God is not done with those of us who struggle with greed. Amen? He's not done with us. And, it, and God's in the business of reaching those who are still living for it. He's in the business of reaching those who are living for it. They both need to come to the same point of learning. That's learning what C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, that he who has God in everything else has nothing more than he who has God only. Nothing more. Both of them can experience the deep satisfaction of the life that they are craving for. Both can experience. Let's turn back to us. How desperate are we? How desperate are we? Has God humbled you and I to the point where we are desperate enough to try anything? I want to share with you some next steps this morning that could be taken from this passage if we are indeed willing to try. And here's the first one. The first one is this. Speak up. Speak up. You know, the, the, this amazing uh, change of heart that Naaman experiences, it starts by God using a little girl. It starts with God using a little girl who spoke up regardless of her station. And, and, and in fact, she ends up being the hero of the story. If there's a hero in the story, it's in this little girl. It's not in the kings. It's not in the powerful people. It's in the little one who decided to speak up. And I think you and I might be surprised who might listen to us if we spoke up. You might be surprised who was desperate enough to hear what you had to say. We might be surprised when we speak up about our God. Second, listen up. Naaman's choice to listen to some very unlikely sources, starting with the little slave girl and then moving to the weird prophet Elisha and then his own servants, they were all unlikely sources to listen to. But we would benefit from having the humility to listen, to make listening a practice. We should be taking time to listen to the godly influences around us. It might just save our lives. Third, finally, give up. Give up. We don't oftentimes hear that kind of phrase in our culture, but give up. Listen, greed has a stranglehold on many of us. It certainly has a stranglehold on our culture. We need to recognize it. We need to call it what it is, and we need to realize that willpower will not conquer it. Willpower will not conquer our greed. Tim Keller wrote on this saying, What makes you a sexually faithful spouse, a generous, not avaricious person, a good parent or child, is not just redoubled efforts to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is in the deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. The seed of your mind, 
will, and emotions. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our understanding and identity, and our view of the world. It changes our hearts. Behavior compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. Friends, when Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. Heart change is the starting point. And you know, as I look back at my life, and I look at my, some of my own struggles with trying to find satisfaction in different types of greed, the same self-effort that I would use to try to get more would oftentimes be what I would turn back to to try to overcome the greed I had entrenched myself in. And every time, whether it was stuff or money or sex or appreciation or approval or whatever, every time, it has not been my effort that has somehow pulled myself up by the bootstraps and gotten myself through. It is in giving up. It is in surrendering that opens my heart and your heart back up to receiving the life the satisfaction and love that we were so desperately looking for. And finding our satisfaction in the river of life that God intended us to enjoy and thrive in, there is where we find all we need to overcome. There is where we find power. Friends, the power for victory comes when you and I are desperate enough to give up to surrender all. Are you desperate yet? Are you desperate yet? Are you willing to trade in some old loyalties believing that our greed cannot get what only the gospel can give? Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we recognize that we need your help. God, we recognize our effort, our work, is not enough. Lord, we are building sandcastles by the ocean if we think that our effort will fix the situation. God, we need your supernatural strength. We need you to come in and do the deepening work of our heart that we would find the source of satisfaction that we are looking for in all the wrong places, that we would find that source of satisfaction in you. God, would you allow us to turn to the wellspring of life that you have promised to live inside of us through. We would turn to that wellspring and we would find the satisfaction of our souls. We pray that in your name. Amen.